Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Vietnam War there was an argument in America between two poets in California Denise Levertov who was a great anti-war activist and the poet Robert Duncan and they wrote many letters to each other and her point was as poets we must oppose the war and he said no as poets we must imagine the war and I think that there might be that argument going on between artists that there are some artists who will want to work as as agitators, as pamphleteers against war. What I wanted to do in that book was to show you what it's like, what the motives are like, how it could be in you to build a character from innocence towards um, not only experience but cruelty, to show you that this is something that remains in all of us. We must imagine it and know it in order to deal with it. We can't simply say, oh, other people feel like this and I'm against those people. I'm going to march for peace because I myself could never do anything like this. And what I'm saying in this book is, be very careful if you think that. Because under certain pressures, you'll never know what you do. And so I think that's a novelist's job, is to imagine evil as much as oppose evil. had a book, Iraq in its entirety would become a huge library, impossible ever to catalogue. The words of Mushin al-Ramli from his latest novel, The President's Gardens, published by MacLehose Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Is revenge always pointless? And what was life like under the violent dictatorship of Saddam Hussein? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with two perceptive and thought-provoking writers, one an Irishman, the other an Iraqi, writers with tremendous vision, skill and depth. Colm Tobin explores the theatre of war as teased out in his latest novel, House of Names. And Luke Lifgren explores the words and ideas of Iraqi writer, poet and academic Mushan al-Ramli, author of The President's Gardens. But first, how relevant are the ancient Greek tragedies for our times? Let's hear from novelist, critic and essayist Colm Tobin. I have been acquainted with the smell of death the sickly, sugary smell that wafted in the wind towards the rooms in this palace. It is easy now for me to feel peaceful and content. I spend my morning looking at the sky and the changing light. The bird sound begins to rise as the world fills with its own pleasures, and then, as day wanes, the sound too wanes and fades. I watch as the shadows lengthen. So much has slipped away, but the smell of death lingers. Maybe the smell has entered my body and been welcomed there like an old friend come to visit. The smell of fear and panic. The smell is here like the very air is here. It returns in the same way as light in the morning returns. It is my constant companion. It has put life into my eyes, eyes that grew dull with waiting, but are not dull now, eyes that are alive now with brightness. 
I gave orders that the body should remain in the open under the sun a day or two until the sweetness gave way to stench, and I liked the flies that came, their little bodies perplexed and brave, buzzing after their feast, upset by the continuing hunger they felt in themselves, a hunger I had come to know too, had come to appreciate. We're all hungry now. Food merely whets our appetite, it sharpens our teeth. Meat makes us ravenous for more meat, as death is ravenous for more death. Murder makes us ravenous, fills the soul with satisfaction that is fierce and then luscious enough to create a taste for further satisfaction. A knife piercing the soft flesh under the ear with intimacy and precision, then moving across the throat as soundlessly as the sun moves across the sky with greater speed and zeal. Then his dark blood flowing with the same inevitable hush as dark night falls on familiar things. What a hypnotic read, um, column and, uh, and a very engrossing um, novel. Tell me, do you think we get an answer to all life's problems and all life's big questions from the Greek tragedies? Do you think that we can look to them like, like we can look to Shakespeare maybe and figure things out? They're not good about love. Shakespeare can be marvellous in the comedies about things ending, things like Twelfth Night, things end, ending happily in a satisfactory way. They're very good, the Greek plays, about the worst happening, being followed by the worst, being followed by the atrocity, being followed by more, by the elements in us all that are dark, that are easy to, in a way, release, um, and the, also the idea of being really unlucky. The idea of somehow or other things not being with you, things not being on your side, uh, somehow or other things being fated against you. They're good on all that. No, they're not good on love. And what about revenge? They're good on revenge as something you um, served cold and then served with immense heat. You know, Shakespeare could do that too with something like Titus Andronicus. But certainly when you get this story, which is the House of Atreus, which is what Clytemestra plans to do to her husband, Agamemnon. Agamemnon um, has sacrificed their daughter Iphigenia um, because the gods said he should do so, so the winds would change before the Trojan War. And she's waited for some years while he was at the war, thinking, if he returns victorious, I will murder him. And I will plan it meticulously, slowly, down to the smallest detail. I will get him. And um, in turn, her daughter, Electra, takes offence at this, takes her father's side in the feud, as it were, and waits until her brother returns. And when Orestes, the brother, returns, she eggs him on to, in turn, have revenge on their mother, on Clytemestra, so that that revenge then occurs too. So it's a cycle, a spiral of revenge. Electra is a very interesting um, character and she's a very difficult one to judge because in one way she's a victim of circumstance, but another way um, she's human and she's got blood in her veins and you can understand why she'd have such rage. She's easier to read for me than her mother or indeed her brother. That in other words, she feels this um, preternatural rage against her mother. 
And, uh, you know, often there are versions of the play in which you think, well, why does she feel this? It was her father who did the sacrifice. But what she feels is that her mother had no right to take the law into her own hands in relation to Agamemnon, that it was not her mother's job to do this. Also, her mother has taken a lover, Aegisthus, so that um, she's filled with jealousy, filled with rage, and filled with an an irrational need to act. And um, I can see her motives. I can see everything very clearly. It's the mother who began to interest me much more because it begins the novel my novel House of Names with the mother on her way to a wedding that she's going to the wedding of her daughter Iphigenia not 